1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. There's a skit by the comedy team Key and Peel where they parody uh, those scared straight programs where sometimes you bring somebody who has a criminal history in to try to warn teenagers not to follow their path. And so in this skit, there's a high school principal who's clearly having trouble keeping uh, the students contained, and he announces they have a guest speaker at the assembly that week. And the guest speaker is sort of an an older, former tough guy who comes out, and he shares uh, the various things he did and the consequences. And the theme is the consequences of what kept happening to him. But the odd thing is the consequences were ridiculous and unbelievable and not at all connected to the things that he did. And so, for example, he comes out and says, you know, when I was your age, I was just like you. And then I found I started stealing from my mother and from my father and even my sister. He says, and then a piano fell on my head. And then he says, look, I got out there again and I started doing some really bad crimes. And he goes on with it and says, and then I got trampled by a herd of buffalo. And as he's going on, trying to get their attention, you can see he's losing the crowd. He says, look, I started to hang out with some really tough kids. He says, more than cigarette smokers, presumably uh, drug users. He says, and then I got shot out of a catapult. And at that point, the principal comes in and says, kids, please leave. Don't listen to this guy. And as the kids are leaving, he stops and he says, wait. He said, I got into some real difficulty. I, I did a drive-by at my own daughter's party. And all of a sudden, everybody stops and they're quiet. He says, I shot people. Lots of people died. He says, and then I got sucked into a wormhole. And then he starts going through these ridiculous things. And as he's describing it, everybody leaves. And he gets so upset and he's so distraught about what happened with people leaving that he has drugs on him. And he takes them out and he's about to use them. And then a wrecking ball comes and smashes into him. Now, as far as I can imagine, the skit was meant to just be ridiculous to make us laugh and is not meant to make any deep philosophical point. But I think many of us actually experience life that way that, that sometimes we think that certain difficulties are consequences where we should be able to trace back an action. If I get an illness, if I'm a victim of a crime, you know, what was it in my past I did that this is the logical conclusion to? And, and sometimes things really are as meaningless. If a piano does drop on your head, that may or may not be because you were stealing from your parents. So on the one hand, we, we assume an orderly enough world uh, with cause and effect that when, when there's a bad effect, we assume that we should be able to know a specific cause, and that could be troubling and problematic. 
On the other hand, the world is sufficiently orderly that sometimes there are effects uh, for things that we've done, outcomes for our actions and choices, and yet we're stubborn and blind and we don't see them and we don't acknowledge them. And so if you keep breaking your promises and you find that your friends, um, your relationships start to uh, uh to, to go, uh, 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 people start to um, not stay as close to you, the instinct to say there must be something wrong with them rather than recognizing that actually might be the outcome of behaviors we're making. And so all of us get this wrong because the world is so big and complex. And because of the complexity of the world and the limitations of our knowledge, uh, part of this life is dealing with experiencing things that we, we don't understand why they're happening we can't necessarily explain them. And so um, what happens is we don't grow. Christians are meant to be disciples. Disciples are learners. So we learn, we practice. There's a sense in which um, as we go through life, we expect to find ourselves in situations that we don't understand, where we don't have ourselves in control, where we're not in sufficiently in control. But we have to make wise choices, and the hope is that over time we're learning and growing. And yet that process gets so hindered um, by, by a number of ways. And so in view in the passage today is what's termed in verse 12 as a fiery trial. You know, we go through seasons of life with great difficulties, and, and the word fire there, uh, that word in our translation, um, those of you who are familiar with sort of Christian imagery may immediately think of the refining fire, the purifying fire like that you put metal through. Um, the trial that comes, the difficult period, that comes. Um, how do we navigate that? And what, what happens is, you know, most human beings, we need a certain amount of challenges or we get bored in life. So there's this window, if we're not being challenged, um, that's not healthy for us, we're not going to grow. But on the other hand, there is an upper limit of, of at what point are challenges so overwhelming that they're not productive, they're not causing us to grow, but they're destroying us. And I think now we're in an extended period where the challenges have been big enough, uh, where we're being overwhelmed by them. This weekend marks two years since the shutdowns. So one shutdown, uh, the last, last Friday would have marked the last day of public schools for New York City kids. Um, today would be the two-year anniversary of our first weekend on Zoom. Two years of something, and we're still sitting here masked, and we still don't have everybody with us. And so this is a big enough, a global problem. And now it's happening in Ukraine, of course, our, our empathy for the people of Ukraine should, should draw our interest in. Um, but the reason many of us are interested is because the implications, if this spills out of those borders, this could be severe. The, you know, World War III, the, the fact that that term has even come up as a remote possibility is overwhelming. You know, I look at um, the trend in this game, Wordle. Some of you uh, play it, many of you are familiar with it. And I wonder why is it so popular? And there could be numerous reasons why it's popular. Um, but it's a simple game. You just have to, you know, figure out a word with its five letters. You get, is it five tries, six tries? I now forget however many columns it is. Um, why is it so popular? Well, I think one reason, I suspect one reason that it's popular right now is because it is challenging. You know, you have to stop and you have to think, you have to pay attention. But it's not so challenging that you typically can't complete it. Um, and I think as a mental break, as we're trying to figure out what does it mean to work remotely as we're reading the news about uh, what our country should be doing in terms of international diplomacy, 
having a moment where you could sit down and face a challenge where you can complete it brings, just brings a few minutes of satisfaction, of order. In this last week, there were some angry Wordle players because there was a word where the last four letters uh, could have been any number of words with various first letters. And so some people who had been keeping a streak found themselves naming legitimate words, but then not making it. Uh, why would people be angry about it? Well, sure, it's a game and you play it and you take it seriously enough and we have our competitive spirit. But I think part of it is, Wordle represented just a moment of competency and control and completion. And I think that reminded us in a very subtle way, yeah, the world doesn't always work as we want it to. So what do you do when the fiery trial comes? Various forms, globally or just you as an individual. I'm going to talk about three things today from the passage. The first is don't be surprised. That's actually um, helpful to hear. It's not a correction. It's not what's wrong with you that you're surprised. Um, he begins by saying, beloved. <laughs> so he's addressing an audience that he cares where he says, beloved, that's verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. So on the one hand, having an understanding of the world where we're humble enough to say, we, we don't know everything, we can't anticipate everything, we can't control everything. So when something happens outside of our expectations or control, not being surprised is actually simple, simply a way of saying, yeah, no, the world can still be orderly even if I can't see it right now. So it's helpful in, in that front. Um, but it also does mean that we, we should be planning. We can, we can be preparing. We can um, better posture ourselves for the unknown future. But one of the growth uh, situations we will find ourselves in is precisely in situations where we say, I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm not sure what to do. Um, I wish I could have avoided this. I don't know how to fix it. And so, so don't be surprised actually speaks into that situation, which is to say, look, there's some things that no matter how perfectly you lived, uh, if you knew uh, more than any human being on the planet, um, there would still be situations where you'd find you still don't know everything. You can't control everything. And so, so that actually is helpful if it simply normalizes, okay, you're in a situation where you don't know what to do and, and you're not fully in control, but you still have to make choices. One thing is don't be surprised. And, and then that language is as if something strange were happening. It's, it's that disorientation, the strangeness. Wait a second. I'm now confused. I, I don't understand. I didn't expect. That's really hard for a lot of us. And this passage is saying, sure, but we're going to need to navigate those situations. So, do, so don't be overwhelmed by surprise um, as if something strange were happening, but especially as Christians, we understand in following Jesus that, that yes, the promise is of great blessing, of great reward, of great joy if we follow Jesus, but it's, it's not as we maybe think of it in terms of the American dream or other, other expectations where you can avoid every difficulty or uh, you're constantly being rewarded and you're beating the market in some moral way that... Sure, you're not perfect, but if you're better than everyone, your life will work out better. And so, as Christians, we know, no, actually, sometimes um, I could have made great choices. I could have been a, a firmly decent person, and things go wrong. That, that's something that, um, yeah, it's strange. It shouldn't be that way. But don't be surprised when the trial comes that you're so disoriented. And so, the language here is that when, when the trial comes to test you, and that idea of, of testing, of refining, of learning, the feedback loop, 
where, where a wife will show us, you don't yet know enough. You're not yet competent enough. You need to grow. Uh, the language of testing, you know, this is part of our scientific method. You know, you have a, have a theory about something, and it's not just a random guess, but it's informed on some observation based on learning that you have. Um, but you don't write a paper on it until you've run some experiments to draw some conclusions. Have, have I actually looked into it? Uh, the experimenting, testing component is really important to get through your biases, to, to get clarity, to make sure that this wasn't, you know, just three random tries in a row, but it's sufficient to be able to say we've actually learned something. And so for us as individuals, um, you have your theory on how life should work on what your expectations are, what your hopes are, and there are times that where you find you need to experiment a bit. Wait a second, this is not what I planned, and so was my theory wrong? Do I need to alter it? Do I need to adapt a bit? Um, do I need to refine it? Do I need to just admit I was flat out wrong? Uh, everyone needs to go through this. And the process of Christian growth is not that the moment you become a Christian, you know everything, but you know the key things that will help prepare you, but, but then life continues to, to test that. What are you really hoping? What is it you really believe? What do you really expect? And we'll find, oh, I, I thought I had a grasp on it, and now I'm going deeper. And because we can't always hold on to nuances, sometimes we're prepared to give everything up. I must have been entirely wrong. But this idea of, of testing in the Christian life is to say, well, you're not entirely wrong, uh, but here's some areas where you are wrong. <laughs> your faith in Christ may not be a problem, but your faith is not as fully in him as you perhaps thought, and now you're seeing it. So then the question is, what do you do? And that's what the fiery trial does, is it, it, it opens everyone. I'm now talking about Christian discipleship, but this is true for any person uh, of another religion, of no religion at all. The difficulties of life expose, here's what you expected, here's what you believe, here's what you think, here's how you think things should work, but now what are you going to do in this hard situation? And, and the Bible's perspective is that those who are wise will... Um, will grow in humility to, to see uh, our own limits, our own, uh, the limits of our capacity, but also grow in a confidence in God, that that actually is, is a path to greater stability, greater security, greater learning. And Jesus promises to lead us in that path. So we follow Jesus through these fiery trials and we're being tested. We find out that, yes, we believe certain aspects of Christian doctrine, but in terms of what I really hoped would give me a meaningful life, um, you know, the situation is showing that I actually believe that something like success in my career was really going to be where I'd be satisfied and Christianity was where I was going to take care of my future after death, something like that. And then you realize, oh, wait a second, um, my career is increasingly disappointing and there are all sorts of people who have far less than me and they're deeply satisfied in Christ is what is the learning opportunity in that moment when the fiery trial comes? Or with our actions that you have a certain plan of what you think you're going to do and then all of a sudden you realize the, the good deed that you had been committed to is no longer rewarding or pragmatically doesn't seem to work. And then you find yourself thinking, well, were you really doing good things simply because you thought you would reap rewards from it or is it because you really come to grow in such a goodness that that's who you are. And so the fiery trial exposes those things. And it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's easy to talk about, but of course, it's always confusing. It's demoralizing. But the idea is, if we're under the care of God, if we believe in the wisdom of God, 
Well, then those moments, um, you find yourself saying, wait a second, I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> um, of course, uh, my investments went down. And I always knew that I couldn't guarantee that I could retire at age 40 and still have a Tesla and an apartment in Midtown. Now I have to have a skateboard and an apartment in Washington Heights. And so the, the adjustment of the fiery trial. Um, Jesus says uh, in Matthew 7, so the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, really hard teaching that you think, does he really expect us to do this? But he ends by saying, those who hear my words and do them are like those who build on a firm foundation. When the winds come, when the rain comes, they stand. But those, who he- those who don't hear because they're not listening or those who hear and don't do, uh, there's something foolish that when, when difficulties come, they're not at all equipped for them. So look, we are not equipped for every situation right now. Um, But there's a strength that's meant to be in Christ that then you find yourself in that surprising situation and you say, I'm not ready for it. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. But that's where you stop and you realize, oh, is this an area where where I am to apply what I've learned? (laughs) That I'm really to hold to my convictions and I'm to learn new things. And that is... Um, a regular part of the Christian life. Sometimes it happens very simply. You just have a minor interaction, but sometimes it happens through months of difficulty, and we're called to persevere, to stay the course, to, to get clearer on what is it we firmly believe. And what's offered to us by Jesus, the teacher, the one who calls us to follow him, uh, what he claims is if you, if you keep close to me, if you keep applying, if you keep trusting, if you keep doing as I would do, uh, you are going to be strengthened. And so that doesn't mean that by the end of today, you'll be fully satisfied about your current situation. But over the long haul, you'll find that you are being brought through and that uh, the testing is making you stronger, not exposing you for your ultimate demise. And so uh, the first thing when you face a fiery trial, don't, don't be surprised. Um, understand that... that um, the ways that we are to navigate that is to recognize I'm learning that I trusted things that are no longer supplying. I'm learning that I need to depend more on something greater than myself. I'm learning that this world is more complicated and I don't know it all. Um, and so what do we do with that? And Jesus says, well, in those situations, draw nearer to me. So that's the second thing. What do you do in the fiery trial? First, don't be surprised. But second, draw near to Christ. You know, one of the things that we need to learn is that Christianity is not just a, a, a number of rules that you do where it's not about some rewards that God has for you as a, a carrot before us if, if we behave certain ways, but it's about a restored relationship um, where there's a, a, a separation where, where we don't know God and therefore we're left confused. And Jesus is sent so that we would know God, that we would join with him. And it's that joining our lives with Jesus that then starts to make sense of everything and makes it possible. And so in this passage, when it's talking about our persevering through it, it's not saying here are the principles that will get you through, but do you understand that in joining your life with Jesus, on the one hand, your future got a lot better. So First Peter is about this living hope of what's on the other side of a faithful life. Your present just got better. There's reasons that you can rejoice now. Um, but this is not simply a quick fix for all of life's problems, and in fact, There are new rewards, new motivations, but new challenges. Now, being a Christian, 
will make your life harder in some ways. And don't be surprised about that. Don't be resentful about that. But recognize that actually is a step of progress, is a step forward. So in those moments, what do you do when you're disoriented? What we're told is in those moments where we're, we're tempted to give up, we're embarrassed, we're ashamed, I'm not good enough, I don't belong in the church, or I'm angry with God, how can God do this? However we push him away. That actually those are precisely the moments that what we need most is to draw nearer. And so what's in view in this passage is suffering as part of a life united with Jesus. So verse 13 says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. See, there are his sufferings, and then there are ours, and there's meant to be a sharing. He will share his life with us, his honor, his glory. He shares our sufferings. And so as we're suffering, the, the rejoicing comes from knowing we're not alone. God is not apathetic, but Jesus entered in. So we rejoice insofar as we share Christ's suffering. We live a faithful life, and yet it's still not working out. Don't be so discouraged by that yet. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ. See, that's different than somebody yelling at you because you've done something so problematic that they are justly correcting you for it. In view here is, is actually the, the disorienting reality where you actually did the right thing and you're being rejected for it. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, well then, don't allow that to overwhelm you and stop you. Don't allow that to control you and change your behavior. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, and so that's, that's in a focused way what's in view here. Now, uh, the teaching here does spill over to other forms of suffering when we, when we face COVID, uh, war, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine situation, personal difficulties. Uh, the paradigm extends out. But what's in view here is in particular the idea that, that being a Christian uh, makes life better but in certain specific ways can make life harder. And so the contrast here in verse 15 is, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And this is the, this is the issue we have of, of how we can't make sense of the world. On the one hand, most people assume a sufficiently wisely ordered world where there are actions and consequences, there are certain law, scientific laws that have consistency, um, and therefore there's cause and effect, and we, ex we expect that, and then what happens is when, when there are bad outcomes that we can't make sense of, they don't seem right, it could be overwhelming, it can make us angry or it can make us doubt the stability of the world. Some people think it's easier to say actually the world is utterly random, uh, there is no stability or predictability, and therefore do whatever you like, but it's really, it's really hard once that's your foundation to make sense of anything and to justify uh, deeper meaning for life or, or why even be bothered with suffering if, if everything is random. Then, uh, so most of us usually wind up coming back and saying, no, there is some meaning, some order, even if we understand it differently. And therefore, if the world still has justice, um, uprightness built into it, a murderer should suffer. We could talk about how. Is it as a punishment from the governor, government? Is it, is it their own conscience? Is it the revenge of the, the family? Uh, we could talk about what that looks like, but, but it would be odd to say, well, then let's reward the murderer and not hold them accountable. We would say that's, that's corrupt, that's problematic. We assume a certain amount of, 
of even if we can't fine-tunely say what's right and wrong, if somebody murders someone, we have to be clear, that's wrong. And that person, there should be consequences for that. The thief, the evildoer. The problem here is, is what we're saying on the one hand, we live in a world where the evildoer doesn't always seem to have consequences for their evildoing. And the surprising nature of this trial is I've now committed to a different way of life and I'm trying not to be an evildoer. Um, and yet what the effect of it is that I'm suffering. <laughs> so you look out in the world and it seems like those doing evil appear to be prospering and the more that I'm trying to do good, the more I realize that life is hard and, and it seems unjust and it seems unfair. And so that last one, let nobody suffer as a meddler. Kind of a hard word to, to translate. Does that mean a, a busybody? Uh, the scholars debate that. I always have liked the word meddler uh, simply because it reminds me of, of my upbringing of Scooby-Doo. The only time that I ever heard anybody insulted for meddling uh, was in this cartoon. Some of you are familiar with this uh, these group of teenage hippies that go around and they solve these um, crimes where people are fr uh, causing fraud, you know, pretending that there are ghosts in the house in order to keep people away so you could be embezzling money from a family, that kind of thing. And then whenever the, the, the thief is caught or, the, or whatever it is, the nature of their crime, um, rarely uh, in that cartoon does the person say, well, here I am. You caught me, and now here's a, a restoring of the order of things. Instead, there's hostility. Nobody ever would have found out if it wasn't for those meddling kids. And that's the, the accusation. Well, the kid, what did the kids meddle? Well, their meddling was actually exposing the truth. And that's the thing is, on the one hand, those of us who are meddling, who are busybodies, who are thieves, when things are made right, we get angry and frustrated by it. It's the weird thing, rather than stopping and learning and seeing the truth and making right, we double down on our defensiveness. We're, we're prone to not seeing and believing the truth because we're stubborn, we're hard-hearted. You know, God is pictured as just. God is pictured as one who speaks truth, who will make things right. And the process of making things right can sometimes be hard, can be painful, and one response we have is then to resent uh, the making of right and the costliness of it rather than recognizing, here's an opportunity to see that I've been doing wrong so I can change it, so that I can fix it, we then want to rail against those, whether they're human or divine, who expose us. We are thieves, we are meddlers, we are murderers, at least according to Jesus' standards in our hearts. All of us have, have this problem that then keeps us from seeing, from believing, from changing. The reason we're to draw near to Christ is because uh, Jesus actually comes to us in order to make things right because God is just. But his making things right is announcing the truth. It is showing us a better way. It is bringing actual change into our lives, even if it can be hard, even if it can be costly. But we're told that, that the greater aspect of the cost is his. So if we feel like we're suffering as part of a process of uh, growing in humility, of grace, of learning, of wisdom and of becoming more like Jesus. The thing we're supposed to see is um, the invitation is to draw near to him to share in the life of God in him and the future life in the kingdom. Um, so that's the invitation. If you join with Jesus, you share in his honor and glory. Um, but the willingness of Jesus to share in our sufferings is often what wins us over, what helps us to see that here I am struggling, unable to make sense of this, unable to endure, and yet there's one who comes into my life and in order to share them, 
um, so that I might come out stronger, so that I might come out um, uh, with a greater hope, with a greater future. And we resist that, but we're told don't resist. In those moments, every moment, whether you have not joined with Christ and your disorientation is making you say, where do I go? Jesus speaks the invitation, come to me. I will help you through this. Or whether you've been a Christian for any number of time and the moment happens to say, Lord, where are you? And Jesus says, listen, stay close, follow me. Because we're, we know in our world that those who suffer as a murderer or as a thief, that would be just. It's just surprising when the thieves don't suffer and those who we deem as good, however we define that, do. And Jesus says, don't be surprised as though something strange is happening. The world is being made right. But recognize in this that when Jesus came and suffered, he didn't just suffer. The interesting thing is he suffered as a murderer. He suffered as a thief. You know, he was crucified. And that's striking because even if from modern standards we can say the Roman Empire was distinctly cruel to punish criminals in this way, they wouldn't necessarily punish a thief, somebody who stole something from a market with crucifixion. It's not beyond them, but that's not typically how they dealt with thievery. You know, Jesus is crucified between two individuals. They're typically called uh, the two thieves. And most scholars would say, yeah, maybe insurrection is, is a better charge than just being a thief. Well, however we define it, small or great, uh, Jesus is there keeping company with people who are um, receiving what's meant to be a just judgment against their being thieves. But Jesus was not. He was upright. He was perfect. He was generous, kind, merciful, godly, honorable. And yet there he is suffering as though he were a thief like them. What we're told is, is this is the wisdom of God. That in order to make things right, uh, his own son comes into the world to suffer for the crimes that we've committed in order that we would receive the pardon and grace so that we can change our lives in advance of that final reckoning, the final day of having to give an account for how we've lived our lives. God begins a process now that prepares us for a great future. And we're told in him, he will lead us through. So the passage last week, um, Jesus came and he suffered death, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. We are, at least in our hearts, in our minds, in our intent, murderers, thieves, meddlers. Uh, Jesus, the righteous, comes and suffers for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. And so it's that being in him. And last week, we, we looked at the passage that had the imagery of the Noah story. Noah was considered a righteous man, but being righteous isn't going to help you when a flood comes to destroy the world. God providing a means to bring him through, the ark, is what saved him. It's God's provision. And no matter how good we think we are, we're not prepared for what this world will show us, but we're told that God has provided something that if you're in Christ, he will bring you through. So Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. What do we do in the fiery trial? How will we get through it? The faith in Christ, hearing his invitation, trusting his ways, his trustworthiness says, you know, in the strangeness, in the disorientation, um, get closer. Be prepared to listen. Be prepared to learn. Be prepared to, to act with sufficient courage because you may have to try things that don't seem to make sense, but they're the ways of Christ. And we're told he's bringing us through. And therefore, it sounds strange. It seems weird. I myself, I've now been a Christian long enough, I'm, I've been a minister long enough that I have full confidence to say the message of the Bible is clear. Trust in Christ. Don't waver. Don't doubt. But I do find myself thinking, yeah, but how, 
How is that the most important, the most helpful thing in this situation? Take hold of Christ in this situation. It seems random. And uh, I think of a, uh, I was thinking of an analogy this week in Star Wars. Um, you know, Star Wars is, is, a, is futuristic. It's things are like this world, but it's not this world. Uh, so there are weapons that are like this world. There's a lightsaber. There are blasters. That's not extremely creative. It's like a sword and a gun. So that's, you know, not that different from our world. Um, in any battle, if I had to choose between a sword and a gun, from everything I know now, I would always choose the gun. And I think with enough distance, if you gave me 100 feet, I have no skills with a gun. But if you gave me a pistol with six shots and put me against the greatest martial artist with a sword, maybe it's arrogance, I would assume the majority of the time I would win. I hope never to, to test that one. But in Star Wars, the lightsaber and the blaster, um, it's, it is different. It's a different world. And the Jedi, the master who has the force, who has the skill, the lightsaber, from my observation, seems the superior item. Actually, you can, you can deflect what comes from the blaster, not simply to protect yourself, but to send it elsewhere. Um, there's something that, with, with mastery, with learning, all of a sudden this thing takes on a new possibility that takes a certain imagination from, from a, a viewer to say, actually, that's like our world, but it's different from our world. Um, the message coming in saying, if you take hold of Christ, you will have a strength that will help you to endure. I don't know, do you find yourself saying, yeah, that sounds, it sounds right for this room? doesn't sound right for Wall Street. It sounds right for this room. It doesn't sound right for the military. It doesn't sound right uh, on the subway. At that point, I need something else. And what we're told is it's not that you shouldn't in wisdom take advantage of other things in the world, but, but actually there's a mastery that comes from people that have grown in Christian maturity who find themselves saying, once I realized that taking hold of Christ, being found in him, staying firm to that, <laughs> Uh, I realized that I was becoming more and more prepared for everything that life could throw at me. Am I surprised? Sometimes. Uh, do things seem strange? Yes. And yet, the faithfulness of Christ um, proves to be the kind of strength where his promise that he will bring us to God uh, proves to be a true promise. And so what do you do when the fiery trial comes? Don't be surprised. Um, but as you navigate it, draw nearer to Christ. <laughs> Here's the last thing, trust and act. So, so the application really of much of First Peter as a whole is to trust God and to act faithfully. Um, so we follow Jesus. How did he face the cross? You know, there's, you see these temptations throughout his ministry. And on the cross, he's being tempted, come down from there, he's being ridiculed. And yet he remained faithful. Look what he accomplished. That through his faithfulness, he brought salvation to humanity though it cost him everything. And now he's revered, he's esteemed, his name is made great. As we think about our own lives, is there something in that paradigm to say, yeah, it might be better to prepare to, to be willing to face with courage and not give in to temptation and to remain strong and to remain upright. Do I have the confidence to say if I do that, even if it feels like it's costing me everything, the outcome of my life as a whole will be better for that. It certainly was true of Jesus and we're told now follow him. And his story and your story become intertwined so that you can now have that strength and that courage. And so what do you do? 
you trust God and you follow. So verse 17 says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We tend to think of judgment simplistically. Certainly when we read the Bible, we think simply in terms of consequences. We do wrong and God punishes it. And we don't think of the greater um, theme of God's justice, that God takes what's wrong and makes it right. Now, one aspect of that is dealing with those who are, have done wrong and insist on doing wrong, um, that there are correctives, but also there are punishments. I mean, that, that's how we conceive of justice. But, but the, the, the vision of God being just is so much more than that. It's about making things right. It's about fixing. It's, it's about repairing. And so judgment begins at the household of God, and the idea here is, yeah, there is a, a final judgment where we have to give an account for our lives, but, but Jesus has come to prepare us for that, to make us ready, to make us right with God now so that we don't experience that judgment as the announcing of a penalty, but as the final being restored and being made right. And so, so God's judgment begins with the household of God. And where does it begin? It begins with Jesus, who experienced a corrupt and unjust judgment in order that the righteous would die for the unrighteous. So we'd say, but didn't God love him? Isn't this the son who, with whom God was pleased? Yes, and yet he suffered. Why? Because our world is corrupt and need fi- needs fixing. It's God's kindness that Jesus did that in order to bring us to God. And now, because truth is to be spoken, because we are to make things right, the process of the Christian life and the household of God, that's the language of verse 17, is that... We need reformation. The church constantly needs to be reformed. We constantly need to be reformed. And there are these difficult periods we enter into. It could be an individual personal period. Lord, um, how do I come through this? Not necessarily what specific lesson are you teaching me that I need to understand what I did, why this is happening, but maybe that could happen. But more broadly, um, Lord, what are you doing so that I will grow? And and things happen in the church. Um, Periods of time. The last two years have been demoralizing for Christianity as it's become clear that corruption has been ingrained enough in churches and we've spent more time covering it up and excusing it and so it's painful and it's confusing but don't be surprised as though something strange is happening Jesus calls us to follow him and to to be upright and so uh, our temptation then is to say I want nothing to do with this and we should say well I want nothing to do with (laughs) with that but not nothing to do with Jesus and his people And that's part of the confusion that most of us can't navigate the complexity of, which Jesus is right, the calling of his community is right, but somehow we've wandered and strayed, and so now God is kindly exposing these things. Well, it's not a kindness when we're humiliated. It's not a kindness when our structures depend on people showing up and participating, but it's a kindness for the future of the church that God doesn't let us go from bad to worse. And so so sometimes... um, Difficulties happen in order to humble us and to sober us. And so we draw nearer to Christ. We double down. Where have we believed the wrong things? Where have we gotten caught up in the wrong ways of being? But we trust that God is right. And so, so if this is judgment, meaning if God is making clear that we need to turn, let's, let's be glad for that because it would be better to found, be found out now and receive his forgiveness than to, have a, to give an account for all of it at once with God on one side of the table and us on the other. We're told instead, come and be part of this process of growth and change. It's it's always God's grace. You can't get your life together. It's God who invites you and brings forgiveness and then invites you into this process. And so as individuals, we go through it. As churches, we have to go through it. But the passage here um, is so hopeful because it's giving us a context of saying, look, 
um, Jesus was fully upright and yet suffered. And so not all of our suffering is a consequence of a specific thing we did. But all of our suffering is something God uses in some redemptive way. And so if we have joined with Christ, if God um, cares for us enough to make sure that he will protect us and watch over us and help us to navigate these things, well then, verse 13 says, rejoice, not in suffering. We don't have to become weird. When bad things happen, we don't have to say, thank you, Lord, that these terrible things happen. My life was too comfortable. It's appropriate to lament. Lord, what happened? I didn't expect this. Lord, please restore things quickly. Lord, bring change. And so we are to pray for God's action, for God's healing, for God's growth. That's not um, meant to be ignored. But there's another part of it that's missing for most people, which is that in the midst of our waiting for God to act, there's, there's a sense in which we say, but wait a second. <laughs> if Christ the beloved, who was unjustly um, ashamed and crucified and yet vindicated by the Father, well then, Lord, I pray for a hastening of an end to this, but, but I rejoice that there's a sharing in Christ's suffering, that something in this is helping me appreciate it at a greater length. Wait a second, Jesus didn't have to experience any of this, but he did it for us. And so let me rejoice that now I know more of the love and the grace of God. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, not for being a murderer, if you're insulted for being a murderer, bear it. <laughs> but if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. And that's what makes us go through life differently to say, uh, at this point, the strange thing that's happening is not because God has come against me. So that's where we examine ourselves. Lord, do I need to turn? Do I need to make things right? Sometimes you'll say, yep, I do. Sometimes you'll say, I, I don't see anything that I did. And then this says, well, then don't waste time trying to spend all your time trying to uncover some secret sin. But, but look at your life. Be honest. If you've done anything wrong, admit it. Turn from it. But the greater thing is to draw near to God and to recognize that Jesus himself at the beginning of the sermon announced blessing on those who are persecuted. Um, the spirit of glory and God rests on you. And so that actually... It creates a difference. If you're a disciple and you say, I don't know everything, I have much to learn, uh, my faith is not fully formed, then difficulties, while we don't seek them out, we don't necessarily ask for them, but when they come, there's a certain rejoicing to say, well, I don't want this, I don't know what to do, but, but if this will make me know God more greatly, if this will make me appreciate the way of Christ that I would become like him, well, then I won't give up, I will move forward. And so it's like the person who gets into fitness. And there are all these, um, you know, if you're, if you're an athlete, all, all these um, teachings about making sure that you pace yourself right so that you don't um, suffer soreness, for example. You know, when you wake up sore with the flu and your body aches, it could feel similar to waking up after you, you know, tried to up uh, by 10 minutes whatever your goal, your athletic goal had been. It could feel similarly. Um, but, you know, sometimes the person who really is goal-focused, could find actually you wouldn't choose the soreness, but the soreness is a reminder, a sense of accomplishment. I did something. I'm growing. And so soreness with the flu, there's nothing good about that. But soreness, because you, you, you did something that made yourself better, you perceive it differently. We are not to enjoy suffering. Uh, we should be wise in our lives so that we could mediate a lot of those things. But when things happen, the perspective, if we're close to God, is, but if we are growing, if God's care is there, if his spirit rests upon us, it's not that we 
um, don't learn from it to try to avoid the same mistakes or that we don't seek God's help. But it changes how we experience things, which is to say, I don't know why this is happening. I'm not sure what to do. But if this is a sign that, that I am in Christ and somehow coming to appreciate him more, to know him more, well, then I'll, I'll stay with him in it. I saw a, a, a discussion between two individuals. Um, it was interesting. It was a, a, a firm atheist and somebody who had become a theist. And so it was different when you see an atheist and a Christian where there's a debate, where each of them are trying to convince each other. Uh, this, these were two intellectuals who were just talking. They were not trying to convince each other. But the, the firm atheist, the classic thing was to give a list of examples of all these miserable things that happen. How could there be a God who is good? Fair enough. I don't know how to answer that. But the other person said, well, it's actually interesting. I went through an exceedingly difficult period. He's not exaggerating. You know, He's not saying I had headaches for three days. He's talking about he went through a really difficult period in life. And he said he found that the more the difficulties came, the more he was angry at the universe. Um, anything that spoke of God, he found himself saying, this is insulting, this is preposterous. And he found himself getting angrier and suffering more. And then pragmatically, he realized at some point, he's like, you know, the more I feel justified in railing against this world and whatever it is, the more angry and hardened I became that I made a decision to not rail against God, but to actually recognize, well, you know, he didn't use this language, but something to the effect of, if God really is wise, maybe he knows something I don't know. And so rather than my judging God, let me be open to drawing near to God in this. And he said that that actually changed lots of things. So this was not somebody who became a Christian, but he found himself saying, I felt thoroughly convinced and justified in my anger with God but I found that the effects of it were not the outcomes I wanted for myself. And so therefore, when I changed my attitude, I actually found that things started to change. And so his contribution to the conversation was, uh, I actually find that, that the position I came to is, is, is more practical than yours. Now, that's not an argument for the truth of Christianity, but it is something that Christians again and again say, just when I thought... Um, you know, I couldn't understand God and uh, I thought that God was cruel when I realized that maybe I'm judging God and the possibility is God is wiser than me, that that actually helped start to bring about the very things that was, was a source of strength, of perspective, of change and growth. So the, so the summary of this passage, the reason I, I made this, uh, this point, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's not necessarily the thesis of First Peter, uh, but I, I'm starting to think that that's probably a great summary of the application of First Peter. But those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls, so that's the faith, the commitment, to a faithful creator while doing good. The more you're convinced that God is not faithful, the harder your life will be. The more that you say, I'm going I'm to double down on just believing God is faithful and then I'm going to commit to doing his ways, that that's a way through it. Now, why would Peter tell us to do that? First Peter 2, a passage we looked at some weeks ago, speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So there's Jesus who suffered, but continued entrusting himself to him who just, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter's application to us is, are you following him? Are you with him? Well, then you should continue to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. But the language here isn't just that he judges justly, but that he's our faithful creator. That will be tested. You will think this can't be true. And what we're told is, allow that to be your premise. Hold to that. And we know it because of Christ. If Jesus ended our suffering, God can't be cruel. But somehow he's done something to be with us. And it's better to not suffer alone, angry at God, than to suffer with God, who is the only one who has uh, done more for us and suffered more for us than anyone can. And so if Jesus entrusted himself to the faithful creator, we're called to follow him. And so I want to encourage you, entrust yourself to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Let me pray for us. Our Father, this really must be by grace. None of us are wise enough. None of us are moral enough. Um, Lord, we need your help. And so, Lord, may your spirit rest on us to open our eyes, to renew us, and to bring us through in whatever any one of us is facing right now. We pray for those who are in a fiery trial. We pray for their encouragement, their strength. We pray for their protection. We pray you'd bring them through swiftly. But we pray you'd hold on to them. We pray for our world now in trial, that we would not allow these uprisings to turn us against you, but instead that we would wisely draw nearer to you. May this be a season of revival. And so we'll do a work of grace so that we would come through uh, as disciples, those who are being formed, those who have a hopeful future. Lord, forgive us for however we're failing in that now and correct us gently and graciously, but bring us through, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.